This morning we look to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I wanted to read our context, which will be verses 1 to 11. I'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible translation. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which, you, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you have believed in vain. For I deliver to you as of the first what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. May God bless the reading of his word. As we look to this passage, we are dealing with the fact of Christ's resurrection. And so this sermon is entitled, The Resurrection of Christ. Paul not only provided the teaching here, but he also provided the truth. Namely, he provided the content related to both prophecy and languages. So when someone prophesies or when someone exercises the gift of languages, features of that would include the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so if it does not include that in some way or lead to that point in some way, then the gift that people claim is operative is not connected to the gift that the Holy Spirit is given. We know because in the work of the Holy Spirit, it is his role to disclose or take that which belongs to Christ and reveals it to us. Jesus says that in the Gospel of John concerning the work, role, and ministry of the Holy Spirit. As we look back a little bit, for the last few chapters of this epistle, Paul explained a few things to us. He explained the importance, the purpose, and order of the gifts, particularly the gifts of languages and prophecy. Here he provides in chapter 15 the content of those gifts. So he explained what the gifts were. He explained the purpose for the gifts. What he then begins to explain is the content associated with those gifts. In other words, when those gifts are spoken or when those gifts are operative in the church, the content base surrounding those gifts features the resurrection of Jesus Christ and also his cross work. This is what Paul wants the Corinthians to communicate to one another in the context of, of the church in that time. But also he begins with something that we will see as a feature, not only throughout this portion of the letter to the Corinthians, but also in second Corinthians, you see him become explicit in commanding the Corinthians to test if they were truly Christians. He wants them to test if they're truly Christians. Verse one. Now, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and which also you stand. Now, look at verse two, by which also you are saved. If 
you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Paul assumed they heard the gospel. That is the good news, the good news of Jesus Christ. And he also proclaimed the gospel to them. So he preached to them. He proclaimed the good news to them. But also he had received it and he had been convinced of it and convicted by it. And he also believed that to this point he had hoped the same for them. Yet Paul was, as we move down to verse 2, not only concerned with their positional sanctification, that is, they are cleansed by Christ by position and their standing in Christ Jesus at the outset of of their salvation. They look to his vicarious, that is, a life he lived for us, sinless life, his propitiatory death, that is, he assumed the wrath of God on our behalf because we don't have the eternal resources to pay God back. That is also his resurrection. We cannot lay our lives down and take our lives up again. We have to have another standing as our substitute and pay for that debt that we incurred, but also to be raised for our justification. That is to say we are declared not guilty based on what Christ has accomplished. So in that he confirms that and he says, I believe this to be true. But you also have to make sure that that's true. And in that he appeals to their progressive sanctification. That is the ongoing work of cleansing that happens by Christ in us. Many passages in the New Testament talks about Christ in us, talks about in Galatians, uh, speaking of Christ in us and in the epistles of Timothy and Titus, but also in Ephesians, being careful how we walk. And features of a holy life before the Lord and other passages as well. We look to as we studied Romans, but he wants them to also be confirmed in their what's called progressive sanctification. That daily day to day occurrence whereby you are being cleansed from your sins and that you are an active participant in confession, an active participant in striving to live holy. An active participant in drinking in and taking in the word of God so as to do what the word says, so as to be renewed in your mind and in your walk with Christ. And so Paul appeals to both of those things. But within that, there is a condition. There is a condition. They had to remain in the truth. He wanted the Corinthians to remain in the truth. It was not simply that Paul assumed them to be believers at the expense of their sanctification. Now that we know that sanctification means to be cleansed by God in Christ. He didn't want them to assume for themselves that they were believers just based on their position or something that had happened in the past. Instead, it was that they were to be considered believers with respect to all the features of their sanctification. So they were to look to their own lives and how those lives related to Christ. And then in in as much as their lives were in step with what God required of them, they could certainly have the assurance of salvation. As Paul said to the Ephesians, they were to walk in it. They were to walk in their holiness, walk in righteousness that was credited and given to them by Christ. Walk in uh, walk in the reality of his commandments. Their faith, even in these first two chapters, 
that Paul wants them to recognize their faith was to have substance in the actual saving work of Christ. They were to actively look at the life of Christ, understand the life of Christ, follow the edicts that come from Christ himself, and then ensure that they were in step with the holiness he requires and the righteousness he now requires. Paul speaks that way in Titus 2, the tutelage of saving grace, verses 11 to 15. They were to deal in the actual features, the exact features of Christ's life, the exact features of his death, the exact features of his resurrection and all the implications that follow. Or else, if they did not do that, it was a vain faith. He says that at the latter portion of verse two, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you. You have to obey it. You have to be convinced by it. You have to be convicted by it. You have to live in light of it. And then look at what he says at the end of verse two, unless you believed in vain. Because there is a certain kind of emotion where you believe something and you fight for a cause and you fight for that cause. Maybe when life is going well or when the most is at stake. But that consistent daily sanctification and holiness is what Paul is after in their lives. And it's what we're after in our own lives and in one another's lives. Because he doesn't want them to believe in vain. He doesn't want them to have a spurious faith. He doesn't want them to have the kind of faith that is rooted in anything other than what Christ has accomplished. You see, that was the issue. Certainly the factions are the issue, but that only tells you the what. The why is because of what factions do. They take your faith away from Christ. And you placed your faith in something or someone else. You begin to look away from what Christ has accomplished. You begin to look away from the eternity that awaits the believer in eternal joy. And you begin to look to something else. So there was this condition. They had to remain in the truth. So then this was the test and the proof. Paul is very forward about what that is and what that looks like. It was also the sum and substance of prophecy and languages. So you understand that as those gifts were operative, it pointed people to either their salvation, their need to be saved or the assurance of their salvation. Today, we understand what is taking place with regard to this message, the fact of Christ's resurrection. I don't want to give the impression that the fact of Christ's resurrection is only tied to prophecy or only tied to languages as they were operative as gifts in the church of that time. But today it is the substance of true Christian saving faith, just as it was then. It informs our fellowship. It informs our practicing of gifts uh, toward one another. It informs the whole manner of Christian conduct. It informs the reality of eternity before us. But also it informs as it spills over into the modern gifts that we have the content of teaching, the gift of teaching. We could go through many of the other ones, the gifts of administration, the gift of helps, the gift of encouragement and all the things that are operative as gifts of the Holy Spirit in the church before us today as we can measure them against God's word. You still have the fact of Christ's resurrection driving not only the gifts, but the whole reason we come together on the Lord's day. All those things pertain to life and godliness 
as Peter says in his epistle. Look with me, if you will, in verse three, he says, for I deliver to you. Now, you see, and I'll read it this way for you in the NASB, but I do want to talk about it. You see in the translation in the NASB where it says, for I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. Now, there are times where we have to deal with things related to translation because on a human level, there is a choice that a translator is making to convey what is said to the people who will read and hear. And so I want to spend just a little bit of time on this. But first, I want to tell you what Paul is concerned with. And then I'll speak to you concerning the language to let you know that there is a backing in the grammar to help us understand why we look at the passage the way we do. Paul is concerned with the chronological timeline and the sequence of events, namely in presenting all the features of Jesus Christ's life. He had basically first preached to them the gospel, the same gospel and its features. He had then delivered to them at a prior time to his reminding them in this chapter. So he's saying there was a time past in which we find ourselves now where if you look back, I brought the gospel to you. I preached it to you. And there was a certain and necessary response. To that end, I want us because of modern ideologies, because of things that have come up within the realm of modern confessing Christianity and modern evangelicalism. I want to be very careful with how we understand what we see. I'm not undercutting the scripture for the scriptures are the scripture. But we believe that they are inerrant in their original manuscripts. We believe that they are divinely authored by the Holy Spirit. Through the hands of the human authors. And we believe that what is before us is certainly close to that. In the sense that it is a translated choice related to things that are presented. So I want you to understand that. But also want you to understand that translations are just that. They're translations. And you and I have to understand how words work together. It can be in our mother tongue. And it could be in English. It can be in the original language in which this is written. I say all that to say, if you look at the NASB's translation, and I do want you to perhaps commit yourself to looking into this for yourselves and study it. Don't just take for granted that I've said it. But the original translation does not include a first importance. It does not include that in the original Greek translation. And I say that because that is a very important point. Those who hold to what is known as theological or doctrinal triage, look to this verse to substantiate the claim that we can organize doctrines into relative tiers. And I want to make sure that not only are you refraining from that practice, but you don't substantiate that practice because of a translated choice. But I get you as near as I can to what it really says so you can draw the conclusions that you need to draw by the Holy Spirit. In other words, I want you to study to show yourself approved, a workman who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But the original translation does not include a first importance. It actually says in the first. It actually says in the first. We do not want you to walk away or anyone under the sound of 
my voice to walk away with the impression that Paul is trying to sort or triage the gospel related to tiers of relative importance. Paul is not saying the gospel is a first tier doctrinal issue. God does not operate from scarcity of resources or pragmatic means to resolve issues. His resources are infinite. God's not juggling or trying to figure out what the need of the moment needs from him. He is eternal. When he comes to address an issue, he has one plan. And we have one hope. And he has one approach. And his approach is perfect. Instead, I want to put it to you quite literally. What Paul is saying is, he's saying, I have proclaimed these things to you literally as soon as I arrived to you. Which he had also received the things that he received and was to preach. So that's why I believe the best way to understand this passage is for I deliver to you in the first what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. What Paul is saying is that is the first thing I told you. Quite literally, if you were sitting here and you were to listen to a recording of how I began this message, you would say he began with this first. He said these words first to me. I didn't arrange them because I thought they were more important than everything else I'm going to say. It's just sequentially the first thing I said and the first thing you heard. But all of it's important. That's what Paul is saying. Now let's back up. This translation wouldn't be a problem if someone didn't come along and pervert it. You would understand that, yeah, of first importance, although everything is important, Paul decided to say this first because the Holy Spirit prompted him to say this first. But when false teachers and hirelings reach into the text, pull things out of it and develop a whole hermeneutical system that destroys your soul because of a phrase, we have to deal with the phrase. And so you see here that that is a very important point to make. That this is a sequential approach to what is said because all of it's important. You see very similar things take place in the book of Acts that we've studied in years past in our Bible study. You see that Luke, in the Gospel of Luke, he presents things very much in logical, sequential order. That this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. John the Apostle writes the same way. They're not saying triage things. They're saying we want you to understand these things as they're presented, sequentially. God has blessed all of us. With the ability to think and reason. But we also think in a very linear and sequential way. Because he's given us logic. He's given us the ability to understand words and to speak with words. It's Paul's point. That's why he said with languages, there are no languages that are interpreted. And they have content and sentence structure. Vocabulary. Paul is also one who provides argumentation. Although he's an apostle, he very much leans on the way that the prophets presented things, that they were like prosecuting attorneys in the courtroom making a case. That you have this, the evidence, you have the indictment as well. You also have features and testimony against you, and then you have the verdict. 
And so Paul presents that the same way here, and he tells them that. Because all of it's important, not just some of it. If you look at the second part of verse 3, he says, what I also received. And then he says that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Well, then you have that there were other facets of the gospel that he explained to them. He's saying, I didn't only stop at what we began with. But I also begin to explain other features to you. This is not relegated to tiers of importance, but sequential, literal teachings that he explained in an orderly manner. There's that word again. He explained them in order. There is an order by which the gospel, the good news, the true gospel is explained to bring both conviction And to strengthen those believers who need to hear. There's an orderliness to it. We're not speaking in coded language. We're not leaving things out of the gospel. So as to make it more friendly and palatable and digestible. But there is an orderly manner in which the gospel of Jesus Christ is presented. And Paul says, I gave it to you that way. But we also see that it leads somewhere. That in presenting the true gospel, as Paul did, he dealt with the fact of Christ's resurrection. He says in verse 3 that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Well, he doesn't stop there. Look at what he says in verse 4. And that he was buried, sequential order. And that he was raised on the third day according to scriptures, sequential order, historical order, divine order. I believe he goes to where he does as we look at verse four, as we have, because, yes, he's dealing with the fact of Christ's resurrection, but also the fact of Christ's resurrection is the binding agent that holds all things together. Paul will later say that as we look to this particular chapter, it is, in other words, the fulfillment of all prophecy. Every prophetic utterance that is uttered in Scripture leads to the fact that we have a risen Christ who will rule and reign forever and ever. Now, everything doesn't necessarily say that, but everything leads to that as it said. It is the substance of the whole Christian confession of faith. The whole Christian confession of faith. Altogether, if you wanted to sum up Not trivialize, but sum up what does the Christian believe you would begin to echo the features of Jesus Christ's life. That he was born of the virgin, that he was sent by God, fully God, fully man, that he lived a perfect, sinless, holy life in our steed for us. That he also laid down his life, suffered a substitutionary death on the cross for us to satisfy the wrath the wrath of God to pay God back where we could not but also that he is risen he is risen indeed he was raised up by God that before ascending to glory he presented himself before witnesses which Paul will say The point of this is, as you begin to confess the Christian faith, you see how much it's about what Christ accomplished. 
I think so much of confessing Christianity has grown weaker because it is about what people have done. You ask people why they're Christians and they speak about themselves. But a Christian is a Christian because of what Christ has done, because of who Christ is, because of what Christ has finished and what Christ will finish and what is just getting started by the hand of Christ. We not only preach Christ, but we preach the risen Christ, the risen Christ, that he is risen indeed. And we don't simply do that one Sunday a year. We do it as the spirit wills, as the spirit causes within us to testify of that reality. And this all is not found in the minds of men. For what did Paul say in verse three? That he did these things, what? According to the scriptures. Verse four. He was raised on the third day. What? According to the scriptures. That is your standard. That is where you look to for the reality and full weight of the testimony of these things and all its accomplished features of it. Implications, implications. But Paul here testifies that this isn't from the minds of men. It's from the scriptures themselves. He's also appealing to the Old Testament writings as scripture to this point. We have to look at the historical feature of where we are in the context. He's referring to the Old Testament writings as scripture. But this is not to discount the the inscripturation process of the New Testament. For as Paul is speaking, the scriptures are being completed. So he's not saying these are of lesser value. He's saying I'm appealing to that which is completed in light of what will be completed. The New Testament scriptures to this point were being recorded. They were being canonized. That is made into a corpus of divine wisdom and knowledge that you could hold in your hands and read and study. It was being canonized during Paul's time and the other apostles and the apostolic delegates were teaching and writing. They were essentially by the hand of the Holy Spirit putting the scriptures together in the New Testament to explain that which already came and was revealed in the Old Testament prophets. But listen to this. This is a very important point here. Then we know we can prove the resurrection of Christ from the Old Testament. You can prove the resurrection of Christ from the Old Testament. You're not looking back at the resurrection. You're looking forward to it. You can prove it. The New Testament looks back to it. But from the Old Testament, you can look toward it. How much more then is it a blessing to us that we also see clearly the actual historical and divine fulfillment and record of the resurrection of Christ in the New Testament as well? We have that in front of us. But Paul, he also upholds the fact of the resurrection. It is absolute divine and historical fact that Christ was raised from the dead. It is to disclose prophecy. He is solidifying the claims of the Old Testament. Paul is not saying I disagree with what was written before. He's saying I am demonstrating to you that what was written before is absolutely true. It is why all the false belief systems who try to ascribe to Paul some type of falsehood, which you see in the scriptures that began that way, and all of them who say he's a false teacher, a teacher of something new, 
They're lies from Satan himself. Because Paul is saying, I'm in complete and total agreement with the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, you can argue New Testament points from the Old Testament alone. But thanks be to God, we have the Old, the old and the New Testament. But he's also reminding the Corinthians in light of that fact not to stray away from Christ and to also understand how the historical account, because he's going to go into that of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, is truly the same as the divine account. The historical account is truly the same as the divine account. In other words, Paul is not speaking about mythology. He's not speaking about some kind of esoteric misunderstood not clear to our minds fanciful story about a messiah he's not speaking in playwright or theater he's speaking about historical and divine fact here's what happened in the history of the world but here's what happened in the divine sense according to god's will as he played out his plans in history and we know that because he appeals to eyewitness Account and testimony of those who saw the risen Christ. He goes to the scripture, that Old Testament scripture canon. He goes to the fact that the scripture is being written. He goes to the fellowship of the church, but then he deals with eyewitness testimony. How can people today discount what Christ has accomplished by eyewitness testimony and appeal to eyewitness testimony as a means to exact the laws of our land? It's quite contradictory to say we need someone who is there. And then when we present someone who is there, they say that's not enough. But it's enough in the laws of our land. Is it just not enough when it comes to faith and that which is required? For people believe things that no one witnessed. They believed evolution. No one witnessed that. They believe all kind of things that no one was an eyewitness testimony to. But here, the scriptures say quite plainly, there were several witnesses to the resurrected Christ. And he appeared to them very intentionally. Paul is also reaching back into the gospel account in agreement with his brothers whom the Holy Spirit used to human author that account. As he being the divine author, he appealed to the eyewitness account and testimony of those who saw the risen Christ. As we consider the part of the whole, we see that this was also something that he's going to drive us toward. Now explain what that is. Verse five, he says, and that he appeared to Cephas, that is to Peter. And then he appeared to the twelve. Judas at that time being replaced. After that, he appeared to more than look at this. 500 brethren at one time. And at the time of this writing, most of them were still alive. He says, most of whom remain until now. So it wasn't like they all conveniently died and nobody has ever seen them or spoken to them. He says they're alive. They saw him as well. This wasn't some delusion. This wasn't some secretive religion that got started in the desert. This is Christ presented himself alive to all, to all he chose. And he says, but some have fallen asleep. Some are some were not alive at that time. Then look at this. Then he appeared to James. Then to all the apostles. And then look at this. 
Verse 8, and last of all, as to one untimely born, Paul says, he appeared to me also. I'm an eyewitness, one who has seen the risen Christ. Let's look to this a little closer. We consider, as I said, the part of the whole. We see that this was also, as Paul mentions it, a prerequisite, or we may word it a preexistent qualification. Something that you have to have to be qualified and credentialed to do something. Paul introduces to us something that was said in Acts as well, in Acts 2, that the prerequisite or pre-existent qualification for being named the Lord's Apostle was that you had to have seen the risen Christ. The only exception we see... And I'm going to explain the nuance of the exception. The only exception we see is also given to us by written testimony. You know who the exception is? Paul. Paul is the exception. And I'll tell you why. He did not witness the resurrection at post-Calvary, immediately after the crucifixion. But he did see and hear the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus. He was blinded. He heard him speak to him in conversation. And then it says elsewhere he was taught directly by him. I believe that the implication can be drawn from that, that there was an appearance to him as well. So he saw and heard the resurrected Christ. So then you see here that Paul is concerned with matters of authority. I believe that because immediately as we read 2 Corinthians, his authority is going to come under question. In other words, Paul is answering a question that I think is helpful for us to answer, and I believe we know the answer well. What gave Paul the right or permission to, above all others, proclaim what he did to the Corinthians? What gave him the right or permission to, above all others, proclaim what he did to to the Corinthians? What gave any of the apostles the right to proclaim what they did to the churches at large? Simply put, why should the Corinthians listen to Paul above others? Because so many others were saying other things to them. Well, Paul says, I saw the risen Christ. I was a witness to him. And anyone else who is the Lord's apostle could say the same. Now, there were others who saw him and were not commissioned as apostles. So it's not... A prerequisite in the sense that once that happens, you're an apostle. It's that you're commissioned, but as one who is commissioned, this had better be true of you. It's also why so many false apostles claim that they have visions. Because they know it's a prerequisite deep down. And they know that they don't hold the credential. That being that they saw and witnessed the risen Christ. But it's also because of what's at stake. What's at stake is the content of Paul's message. That's what's at stake. That's why they have to listen. It's the derived authority he possessed to proclaim to the Corinthians what he both wrote and taught. I want you to believe me because of who I represent. Paul was, in verse 8, like those before him, a witness to the resurrected Christ. He wasn't simply a witness for him. That's true. He was a witness to him. He saw him. But his eyewitness was certainly, as I've said, distinct from theirs. 
And they knew that. They welcomed Paul in the same way. For the other apostles, it was like he saw him in the same way. They didn't reject Paul on that basis. We read about the account of his life in early Acts. He was not hiding this from them, nor did it alter his message to them. Paul said, I saw the risen Christ and I have the same message as everyone else who did. They all saw the risen Christ immediately post-crucifixion and after his burial and resurrection. More than historical fact. Not taking away from historical fact, but more than historical fact, this is precisely what shaped the substance of the true gospel itself. The fact that there is a risen Christ that they saw was certainly a very important feature of the gospel itself. That we saw him. Well, our message is they saw him. He appeared before the apostles. Our message is also that we will see him again soon. But you have it here, the resurrection, the resurrection. This also authenticated those who in that time were tasked with being the Lord's apostles, demonstrating all the responsibilities and gifts tied to that office. Even at the time of Paul's writing, if you look back briefly and glance at verse six, some eyewitnesses, as I've said, remained. However, some died. Paul was not telling lies or mythology. He's saying you can consult with those who are still alive. Speak with them yourself. They have testified to these things. He wasn't appealing to mythology nor appealing to himself as a cult of personality. They did that. He told them refrain from that. And the content of this resurrection and the content of the gospel pushed them away from cult of personality or it should have. There were those, Paul is saying, who could verify what he wrote and what he saw. Same as with John in his epistles. Remember, he speaks about what we heard and what we saw. I summarize. We revealed to you. We explained to you. We saw him. We heard him. We touched him. Peter mentions the same in his epistles. And yet they welcomed Paul as a true apostle on the basis of first the Lord's saving work. If he wasn't born again, he obviously couldn't be an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. They saw that and they validated that claim because they welcomed him as brothers in mutual testimony of the Holy Spirit in them and by the Holy Spirit's work in them. Secondly, the message he proclaimed and the accompanying sign gifts that were operative in him. And also not to be relegated to unimportant, but lastly, the fact that he had seen and heard from the risen Christ himself. And there were people who were not apostles who did who could testify that they, too, had seen these things, that it wasn't just Jesus appeared to one person, because that is how the cults and the mystery religions have started. One person shows up and says, I saw some image or I saw what they believed to be God and it wasn't. And yet Christ appeared before so many to begin something that was very true and something that's fulfilled from the Old Testament. This verse, as you look to it, puts an end to all ideas of apostolic succession, post-Pauline apostolic authority. 
In other words, there are no living apostles who will be commissioned after Paul the Apostle. John would be the last living apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ because of the longevity of his life. But after Paul is commissioned and called to be the Lord's apostle, there would be no other apostles. In fact, Paul was the last apostle elected in the chronological sense related to the early New Testament church era. And he was aware of that fact. He did not view this with, however, distinction above them all. In fact, the language he used here in verse eight, he says, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. It's the language of one born in aborted circumstances. The nuance of that is to speak of one being born in aborted circumstances. That he's not saying I was born in this time and there's a sense of my own greatness. He's saying I shouldn't have been born in this way at all. He did not view himself worthy of this calling simply because he was called last. He didn't view himself as the last great one. He viewed Christ worthy to call him whenever the Lord the Lord saw fit to elect Paul as an apostle. He very much viewed himself the last, quote unquote, of all the apostles, while all the apostles were still living. Some might say, well, where do you see that? Well, he spoke of himself in the context of all who were living as the last one called among them. He pointed to the fact that there was nothing within himself worthy of that calling. Because look at verse nine. What was his distinction among them? He says, verse seven, I want to back up. Then he appeared to James then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. And then look at verse nine. The humility is here in Paul's heart and in his voice. For I am the least of the apostles. You would think the last one called would be the greatest of the apostles. But he says, I'm the least of the apostles. Well, what was the distinction that he saw within himself? It was the notoriety that he brought. It was the fact that he once in his former life before meeting that risen Christ on the road to Damascus, he was guilty. He was guilty of trying to bring the church to its end. He was guilty of persecuting the church as one formerly named Saul of Tarsus. He says, for I am the least of the apostles. And look at this, not fit to be called an apostle. That sounds so much different than all these men who chase their titles. He says, I'm not I'm not fit to bear this name. I'm, I'm certainly commissioned. I'm certainly called to be it, but I'm not fit to be called it as I look at my former life because I wasn't responsible for bringing myself from Saul of Tarsus to Paul, the apostle. Someone intervened. Someone stopped me from myself. Wasn't only called to be a Christian, he was called to be an apostle. After he installed himself as the leading rabbi of the time to persecute the church. You see the contrast. We have today so many self-installed rabbis claiming to be spokesmen for the Lord. But what we need today are those who have a humble sense that they don't deserve anything. 
They deserve nothing more than eternal death itself apart from Christ. To even be standing here and preaching and proclaiming. To be standing up here understanding what I'm saying. For you to be out there understanding what is heard. We deserve none of this in and of ourselves. We boast in nothing but what Christ has accomplished. Praise be to God and his name that any of us are of any use to him. You see the difference in posture. So many say that Paul is their favorite apostle and they don't sound like Paul. Paul says, I'm the least of them. I'm the least of them. This isn't false humility. He's tearing down a cult. He's not trying to build one. But he shows you the way to arrive there is a humble view of yourself in light of what God has done in the saving work. It's the humility we have. It's the humility we have when we face the fact of Christ's resurrection. Paul is going to talk about that later in the verses that follow. He saw what we all need to see. We are only worthy because Christ is all worthy. We are only worthy of what we are and who we are because Christ is worthy. It is only worthwhile because it's tied to eternity and the resurrected Christ who purchased eternal life for us on Calvary's cross. This fellowship that we enjoy is only worthwhile because of who it's tied to, Christ, and what it's tied to, eternity. It's not worthwhile because of where we are geographically or even where we are in the world's history. It's worthwhile because it's tied to Christ. It's tied to the one who has accomplished what he has for eternity and our eternal salvation. So then we come to the however, verse 10. He says, as we end verse 9, not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But he doesn't stop there. Verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. It was all the grace of God that caused the expanse of Paul's ministry to outpace the other apostles. He outpaced all the apostles. He had tried to do in his former life, in his former sinful life, he had tried to outdo all before him with tearing down the church. Now, by the grace of God, he's equipped and he's tasked with outpacing all to try to build up the church. He did not say this to diminish the other apostles, but to state what was clearly a reality. He was, if you look carefully at the hallmark of a true apostle, he was boasting in the power of God's grace. That's the hallmark of a true servant of Christ at all, but certainly of an apostle at that time. He boasted of God's grace not only to commission Paul as an apostle, but to use him so extensively that his labors made more use than his untimely birth in saving grace. That Paul didn't simply live a life of parallels. He did just enough, enough evil and just enough righteous. Paul did so much wickedness and yet through the grace of God surpassed all the wickedness he had done because of the grace of God in him. That he gave him just the matter of people to influence, just the matter of churches to communicate with, just the matter of giftedness to excel and also just the length of life that would be deemed 
worthy of Christ. The Lord was responsible for that all. Either way, understand this point, because here's what he's not saying. He's not saying that he outpaced the other apostles because they didn't work hard enough. None of the apostles were lazy. They were not lazy. They were not slouches. They, too, held responsibilities. Look at this. Verse 11. Whether then it was I or they. So Paul's saying they still labored. They still preached. They still fellowshiped with the saints. Endured persecution. He speaks of that also later. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. He's not talking about his enemies. He's talking about his friends, his brothers. Yes, I outpaced them because that's what God determined, but they also labored extensively. We see then, too, that they held a responsibility from a human and temporal standpoint, whereby they labored and God gave the increase of those who heard and believed through the proclamation of the gospel. And he used them as human agents. Verse 11 says it very plainly, whether it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. Didn't matter if Paul was preaching or if Peter was preaching. To God be the glory. If you believed what was said, because they were all were also consistent together. They believed that which was consistent together. You walk into any building today, people don't believe the same things. And they claim to be leaders. And they have no idea what each other believes. But Paul was very confident in this fact. I believe in all the things I've shared, and so do the apostles. And they're preaching the same things I'm preaching. Because we all have believed on the same name and the same person, capital P. It was, too, that Paul saw the collective work of the apostles as instrumental in the faith of the Corinthians. The collective work of the apostles as instrumental in the faith of the Corinthians. That's important when you're tearing down the factions. Because the factions say whoever leads that group is the most influential of that group. Paul is saying, no, all the apostles were influential, but God is the one to be praised. All of us had a mark on the lives of the Christians, but God is the one to be worshipped for. it. You see the difference here between the apostles and the factions erected even in some of their names as a pretense of division and rivalry. Paul said we are truly together. We are truly bound by the exact, listen to this, the exact and understood features of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which was the basis of their justification by faith before God. They believed and they understood. And so that was important for Paul and it was important for the Corinthians to believe. Next time he'll deal with why it's important not to argue against the fact of the resurrection of Christ in light of its preaching and teaching. Let's pray.